Mouthing Off is a theater, arts, and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Amanda Forstrom. I'm Kevin Couchman. And I'm Mari Sidner. Mouthing Off features compelling interviews and discussions with creators and artists from around the Twin Cities and beyond. Tune in for something different online where you get your podcasts at badmouthtc.com and on the air in St. Paul from Frogtown Radio 94.1 FM. We hope you enjoy the show. Ah, sha-sha, sha-sha, sha-sha. We're back with another exciting episode of Mouthing Off, a theater arts and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company. I'm Kevin Couchman, and we're coming, we're coming down from St. Patty's Day. And I'm here with my uh my mate, my uh my matey on the great ship of Mouthing Off, Amanda Forstrom. How are you? I am excellent there, Kevin. Slanchava to all you Irish out there. I uh, hope everybody had a happy St. Patrick's Day. And yeah, I'm excited to dive in and talk to uh, Julia Brown today. Yes. Uh, so, Kevin, will you introduce mm-hmm. our illustrious guest? I shall. And we will not be slipping in and out of the brogue throughout the course of the episode. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, yeah, we're here with Julia Brown today. She is the Artistic Programs Manager at the great Playwrights Center, presently in Minneapolis, but my understanding is it might be moving to the right side of the river over here in St. <laughs> Paul. Sorry, Ooh. I don't want to. Hey, we're on Frogtown Radio 94.1 FM, and it is a low-powered radio station, which means it only hits St. Paul. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but we are online as well at badmouthcc.com. Julia, welcome to Mouthing Off. How are you? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be here. I actually used to live in Frogtown back in the day, so it's great to be on the air in my old neighborhood. She's Uh, returning to her roots. I love it. (laughs) Lovely. And of course, we're here today to talk about the Playwright Center, what's happening there. Maybe we'll get into a little bit of the history of the Playwright Center for people who don't know. I personally have a little bit of a history there. I was a fellow, uh, Jerome fellow, oh gosh, over a decade ago, uh, but it, it played a really uh, central role in what passes for my career as a playwright. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, just, just a truly uh, an outstanding arts institution, uh, an, an American institution in the theater for playwrights uh, and and the the spirit of new writing is alive and well at the Playwrights Center. Julia, do you care as someone who's inside? Do you care to explain to people who who've never heard of the Playwrights Center before, or maybe only vaguely heard about it? What what does the center do? What's the mission? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we exist as an artist support organization and a new play development center, um, which means that we are here to support writers at all different stages in their careers. And we do that in kind of two main ways. We sort of have an arm that is open to any playwright anywhere from a student to somebody moving into a new career to, um, you know, people who have been produced everywhere in the country. And that's through kind of our membership side, which is really about resource 
education, providing classes, providing community, and uh, providing opportunities. So letting people know, hey, here's where you can send your play. Here are some other organizations you might want to partner with. And then the other side, which is kind of where I live, is um, where we have nine different fellowship programs, uh, as you mentioned, Kevin, that you were you were on at one point. Um, and these are programs that um, writers apply for, and they're everywhere from a beginning or early career writer all the way up through nationally established, you know, sometimes Pulitzer winners uh, on on different fellowship programs. And that's really about investing in a writer for a set amount of time providing them development resources, which for us really means collaborators, right? Because a play, you know, if if you've never written a play, um, but perhaps you write prose or poetry or essays, that's something that you might be able to do on your own. You can send it out and get it published, but a play doesn't really exist on the page, right? Like you need collaborators to see if it works. You need collaborators for it to become the living thing that it is. And so when we say we're a development center, what we really do is bring the collaborators needed into the room to give the playwright as many perspectives as possible to let them actually get a sense of what this living piece of work is, let them rewrite, let them, you know, imagine, do as much as they want, um, maybe even scrap it if it turns out they don't like it. That's progress, too. Um, and then uh at certain points of the year, we also open it up to audiences for free and say, hey, come in, check out this new work, see what's going on, um, and respond to these brand new ideas. Yes, that's a very um, excellent summary. And as a playwright, uh, the, the the center certainly served me. Uh, I know that when, because it's all about an ecosystem. And of course, the, the Playwright Center isn't a producing organization, which... Right which I actually admire because there is something to be said about simply serving as the midwife and serving the the play, the playwrights, and not, uh, I guess, picking favorites in, in mm -hmm. that sense. Um, I'm not going to name names, but uh, certain organizations will develop plays and then sort of like pick the one they want uh, to do. And it creates a kind of an unusual dynamic. There's always some competition in this, of course, but um, I, I, I find the Playwright Center's model to be extremely nurturing. And I think that when if you travel around, uh, people will say, ah, you know, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis is a great theater scene surprising ah i think the playwright center is very frequently top of mind uh when that comes up sure yeah and and it's sort of like you said it's an ecosystem right so the playwright center wouldn't exist here if it wasn't started by playwrights who were here who were local to the twin cities and we have people who come in you know a lot of writers come in who've never been here before and especially you know sometimes coming from new york or la and saying are you sure are you sure you have actors who can do new work are you sure you have these collaborators and after their first workshop they're kind of blown away like oh my gosh this is a new work town because this is, there are so many often, you know, smaller companies devising work, the really active fringe scene, a lot of actors who really um, have the chops and have cut their teeth on new work and development processes. That's not true everywhere. And so I think part of that comes from Playwright Center being here and employing. We have probably, I think I had to count it up for a grant, uh, like 
380-ish roles per year that we cast because we do about 70 workshops every year. Um, so we're employing a lot of people um, and getting that experience, but also, you know, people who are getting that development experience elsewhere and bringing their wealth of knowledge into the center as well. So it kind of, it both feeds each other, I think. Yeah. And I will say as an actor, you know, working and working on new plays and new play development and doing the readings and kind of being a part of the play through its whole life cycle until it gets produced. And, you know, you might not as an actor be cast in that role when they, you know, when there's an eventual production of it, but it really stretches you as an actor and really um, makes you look at the work in a new way. And I just think that every play that I've done since I started doing that um, really, yeah, made me look at uh, the writing and the play as a whole um, rather than just, you know, my part or, you know, the dramaturgy of it or this or that. But it uh, made me made me realize it for the whole, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. and I I really appreciated being a part of those processes. Yeah, I think it's such a, a a cool opportunity for anyone in the room, whether it's a designer, an actor, a stage manager, a dramaturg, you never know if like the way you deliver this one word in one line totally unlocks something for the playwright. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, this character is going in a completely new direction, or we're actually cutting this whole scene off right there. And, you know, so many you know, thinking of the project and what is this project doing, right? And that's something you mentioned, Kevin, that we're not the producing organization, which makes my job so great because I just get to be a hype man. You know, I just get to be excited about everything that comes through the doors. We're not making money off of the plays themselves. We don't sell tickets. So it's not about making something marketable and it's not even about making something possible because we're doing readings, right? And so if someone says, okay, I really think act three, we need to have a live whale on stage who needs to like eat all of the performers and then puke them up with like rainbow sparkles. Awesome. That's a stage direction. You can do that. Like that makes no difference to us. If that's where you need to explore Mm. to unlock, then it becomes, you know, and then maybe we'll bring in a designer not to make the piece, but to talk to you. What does a whale look like? What would that, what would a set designer say? What would a projection designer say about rainbow sparkle puke, you know, and really let's talk about it from a dramaturgical perspective. What do we need to unlock this play and make it work as a story you know, for you, the writer, and then maybe the whale stays, maybe the whale doesn't stay, but it's really, um, you know, we have the ability to like leave some doors open because we don't have the financial pressure of, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, we have to actually, here's our budget for the project. We have to make this thing with chicken wire and paper mache, or we have to get the butts in the seats in order to make this viable. Um, it's really, it opens, things up for us as the administrators and allows us to say yes a lot more often than we have to say no. And you you can only hear about the dramaturgy of Rainbow Sparkle Puke on <laughs> Mouthing Off, a theater arts and culture podcast from Bad Mouth Theater Company. That's fun. And and you're right that that financial pressure uh doesn't exist uh, at at the Playwright Center. And of course you pay playwrights. You dish out oh yeah a not insubstantial amount of money and uh i don't know if people are aware of this but playwrights uh don't make a lot of money 
as a rule. Uh, there's a very thin layer at the very top who who do okay, uh, but it's 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 rough out there. It is rough. And that's one of the like one of our values is advocacy in the field. And that's one of the things that we're really pushing for, because you I mean, you wouldn't, Kevin, as a working playwright, but you would be surprised at how many productions don't involve. They expect the playwright to be there in the rehearsal process, but the playwright is not paid for their time during the rehearsal process. You get your commission or you get your royalty and that's it. And the average, I don't know if this is still the average, but a couple of years ago, a study was done that said the average time between a and a play produced is seven years. And so if you think about, okay, you got a $15,000 commission, that's $15,000 that's essentially compensating you for seven years of work. And that is crazy pants. That's not, that's not a salary. That's not, that's not a wage. Um, And so one of our policies is that every time, you know, we have our fellowship programs that have a stipend, but also every time we bring a writer in, whether that's a core writer, whether we're partnering with another theater to develop a piece, the playwright is the highest paid person in the room. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that we do across the board because that's a value of ours And it's also one of the reasons, you know, kind of sad for us, but good for us as audience members. That's why TV is so good. It's all playwrights. Playwrights are all they're going to TV because you can make a living that way. And I know so many people who are funding their sort of theater habit via being in these writers rooms. Now, for a lot of those people, that's super exciting. That's what they want to do. They're really excited about the form of TV. But it is unfortunate that for some, it does kind of feel like a pressure that you have to get to L.A. You have to get into a TV writer's room in order to be able to afford to do theater if theater is your first love and really where your artistic impulse is. You know, we kind of we wish you'd be able to just follow the impulse into whatever form, you know, you're really drawn to as opposed to having to take all these financial, you know, barriers into consideration. Yeah, we um, are going to produce One Good Marriage uh, the last two weeks of May, and it's our first full production. And by it's this play uh, by Sean Raycraft, a brilliant playwright, um, wonderful human being. And we interviewed him earlier. It's on uh, our our website, badmouthtc.com. So go and listen to that interview. And uh, he is now writing Mayfair Witches, I believe. And he also started, he's Canadian playwright and started um, with the, I think the last season of Slings and Arrows. Yeah. It's mm -hmm, yeah. And he's just brilliant. Yeah. He's just brilliant. And he wrote this beautiful piece called one good marriage and yeah, he's writing for television. So, you know, we definitely see that playing out. Yeah. And it's great as a TV fan. I love TV. And so every time, but it's now a funny, a funny experience for me because more times than not, I'll put on a TV episode. And if I let the credits run, I'm like, you owe me an email. Hey, I got to call this person back. as I see these names pop up (laughs) on the screen. Drives my roommate crazy. (laughs) And that was, that was something that was beginning a, a quite a while ago, like 15 years ago, when I was sort yeah. of at, at the Playwright Center, and then I went down to the Michener Center, and it was sort of well known that showrunners were had picked up the fact that having a playwright in the room was extremely valuable, because playwrights are accustomed to, to collaboration, mm-hmm. and typically very strong with dialogue. Uh, right. 
Right. And I, I think you can um, attribute the, well, there's a lot of reasons we had a golden age of television and a renaissance of television. Uh, one of the reasons that, that was explained to me by somebody um, in the industry is that the the middle fell out in Hollywood for, for, uh, for film. There used to be these, you know, 30, 40 million dollar budget films that would attract a great deal of talent and employ a lot of people. And then what it, what happened is everything became these blockbusters or super low budget indies. Sure. And so all of that talent drifted over into uh, television. Uh, but I think I think one of the um, hallmarks of that golden age is how um, satisfying single episodes of television mm. um, sort of have become. There's the greater arc of the story, but then episodes stand on their own as well. And very often, I think that that is a consequence of playwrights in the room, understanding structure and uh, and bringing that that eye to, uh, to TV writing. Yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting, too, because as you're looking at especially earlier career writers, who are learning multiple forms, right? Then the the lines kind of start to blur between our, and especially, you know, in the pandemic world where we have, you know, Zoom things happening or hybrid digital, you know, that line between what is screenwriting, what is stage playwriting, you know, you kind of, it can get blurred, but then you also have to keep asking that question of why am I telling this story in this format, right? Is this, did you write it as a play because you didn't have the budget to make it into a film? Like, did you, okay, this, this play is real snappy, but it kind of sounds like a TV episode. What is it that needs to be live? And I think there is still, we still as sort of humanity have this desire for a live sort of body to body connection in a room and there is something that um you know that that gives you that that is different not better not worse but just different um we actually have a piece that we're working on this upcoming week drew periser who's uh, an affiliated writer like you kevin um who's creating this piece called the us's and he's experimenting with virtual reality and a vr headset and what happens when part of your audience is able to interact with the story through this VR kind of platform at the same time as there being a live experience? And, you know, what does that do for audience agency? What does that do for storytelling? Um, and the answer is, we don't know. The workshop starts on Monday. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to find out on on Friday, we'll have kind of an open sharing in the evening that's free. Um, people should sign up because we do tend to fill up. But um, but the audience will be able to come experience, see what Drew and his his VR developer, Lawrence Yip, and a 3D animator, Josh uh, Seaver, who's a local artist, uh, and see what they've come up with. And it's all a story about um, kind of like prehistoric humanity. So he's melding this very kind of futuristic technology with super ancient uh, people and the ideas of community and the ideas of like, you know, what does technology look like? for cave people and what does technology look like for us? And it's going to break my brain. I know it's going to break my brain because it already did, but I'm really that, excited to see how it breaks my brain this week. <laughs> that sounds very cool. And all the details of everything we're going to talk about on this episode in terms of what's going on at the Playwright Center uh, can be found at pwcenter.org. 
I'm going to say it one more time, pwcenter.org. I saw a play use VR um, before the before the plague um, over in London. Uh, they, uh, they did, uh, there was a student production of Frankenstein that, and there were, after the intermission, there were VR headsets underneath every chair wow. and it was done in alley uh, staging. And so the audience was opposite another set of the audience. And at the sort of climax of the play, everyone put on their VR headsets, and it was a it was a moment. Uh, I wouldn't say it was like fully realized dramaturgically. It was a bit of like, okay, we've got VR headsets, let's do something with it. You got uh, but money that, then? Oh well, I mean, this I is this was in like England. Three, right, right. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, that that's very exciting. I always um, love plays that uh, interrogate the form and mm-hmm. uh, work with like, what is theater? Every play uh, necessarily does that. Even the most lighthearted comedy, there's always, you're always having to deal with the audience in the room and there's a wink or there's irony. Um, yeah. Or, mm-hmm, yeah. And Drew talks about it. He's such a, he, he works in so many different media and form and He's so in conversation with the audience. He's done a lot of like choose your own adventure kind of things and online gaming kind of platform. Um, and he, we did a conversation that I think is available on on the website um, that was with Drew, with Katie Bender and uh, Mashuk Mushtaq Dean, all about these different types of forms that they're working in. And he had this, you know, was talking about how basically audience interaction you can think of anything like direct address. That's that's audience engagement. That's an interactive piece. If, you know, Hamlet turns out to the audience and says, oh, what a Rogan peasant slave am I? You're engaging the audience, right? So, you know, just kind of opened up my mind because you think of audience engagement as like, oh, a performance is going to come, performer is going to come sit on your lap and like, please don't touch <laughs> me. But to think of it in all these different <laughs> layers and spheres of experience that, you know, you always have to be aware of who your audience is, what are they going to do, what are they going to respond, and that kind of, that sort of missing factor is what makes live work so exciting, and especially new work, you know, in these readings and things like that. Sometimes the actors haven't even seen this scene before. They just got it. It's hot off the copier. So you don't even know what's going to go out to the audience. So you have no idea what's going to come back from the audience. And that kind of like, I want to, I want to say risky. It's not like we're having, you know, people throwing things because we don't give you anything to throw unless the playwright asks us to. Um, but, you know, that kind of uh, the sort of mysterious, you know, intangible is what's so exciting about staying in that world and why, Like, I feel like I'm so satisfied with readings. Sometimes I go to a full production because I spend my whole life in readings, right? And I'll go to a whole production and I'll be like, oh, nice set, nice costumes. Didn't need it. (laughs) Right, right. Speaking of reading, mm -hmm. speaking of readings, Mm. on March 27th, Monday, March 27th at 7 p.m., we're going to be reading Kevin's new play called The Animals. And uh, yeah, it's like hot off the presses and... And uh, still, still being tweaked. And I just and... wrote end of play last night in wow. a draft. And I've been a playwright for a long time. You only get to do that so many times. 
even if you know that you're not done, and I know I'm not done, uh, <laughs> after after we record this, I will be going back into the mines and starting from page one, right, and rewriting and all the rest. But it's a very, very good feeling. Thank you, Amanda. And we, we have a whole um, season planned. It's all at badmouthtc.com. We're going to read my play. We're going to read Mari's play, Nebraska. Mari Sittner, our co-founder, next month. Then we, we have the Phoenix Theater production of One Good Marriage. And then we're going to do a live podcast event for Art of Darkness, my other podcast, artofdarkpod.com. We're going to do Fitzgerald Part 1. So this is a podcast about the dark side of creativity. We do biographical oh. profiles of dead artists. Uh, and the show is a bit of an audience now. It's very exciting. So uh, my my co-host Brad's going to fly into town. We're going to be at Waldman. And we're going to cover the first part of uh, Fitzgerald's biography up until around the point he writes a short story, which I love, called Winter Dreams. And the theater company, Badmouth, is then going to do a theatrical adaptation reading of Winter Dreams. Oh, uh, cool. So it's going to be a super good time. And those are all free, except for the uh, production at Phoenix. We got, we're got we renting the space. We got to pay for oh, yeah. the space. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for mentioning that, uh, Amanda. I really appreciate it. It's, it's a very exciting time. And it's nice that I have uh, this little theater company that I can um, lean on for development and yeah. So, and I'm sure, I'm sure I will send a, a version of the play over to the Playwright Center at some point. And uh, <laughs> um, I no whales, there, no whales were harmed in the <laughs> no making of the animals. Sprinkle no rainbows, yeah, right? Not at all. Gosh. Um, can I? Can I ask? This is a maybe a bit of an aside here, um, but we're talking about interrogating the form. Are either of you familiar with the with Tim Crouch in this play, An Oak Tree? Do you know this no. one? No, can I? But it's just it just popped to the top of my mind. I saw it at the Soho Theater in London many years ago, and it's a play for two actors. Um, it's it's a woman um, and uh, the father, and the father and and uh, male or female uh, is different every performance, and it's oh, somebody wow. who's never seen the play, and he feeds prompts to the father throughout the course of the show. So it's never the same every night. Uh -huh. It's like a mixture of improvisation and uh, I guess story, just a very interesting That's, play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh white rabbit, red rabbit? That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. I haven't it, seen it, but it's a similar. Yeah. I've actually seen it twice now. And Kevin, you, this would actually be an interesting thing for Badmouth to do, uh, hmm. hintity hint. And um, what you do is you the actor receives the play on the night, like in the in the moment that you're on stage. We start the event at seven p.m. and I would receive the script and I have to read it and do it as never having right, you know, cold like cold, mm -hmm. absolutely cold reading of it, and uh, that is part of. You know, every production is different and you never really know what's going to happen because there's audience interaction and, you know, they do it. Uh, I think they had like a run of where they were doing it in like all the major cities uh, mm -hmm. a few years ago before COVID. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, so cool. I saw it a couple times and it was really amazing just watching it right. play out with different audiences, different spaces. You know, it could be a man, a woman, it could be an older actor, younger actor, doesn't matter. And it was just really wild to see what what played out. Well, returning to some of what Julia was saying, uh, that sounds fascinating, Amanda. I'm going to look that up. What is it? Uh, white rabbit, red rabbit? Is that what is it's that called, it? Julia? I it's something. Yeah, it's I can't remember if it's white or red first, but can, but yeah, one of those. We could find it. We could find <laughs> it. Uh, but, you know, as a as a playwright, I always think about and I've also been a dramaturg. Uh, I always ask who is the who is the audience and why are they here? And mm -hmm. that that makes theater unique because they're physically in the room. Uh, yeah. And that's always the most exciting thing. You can always default to ah, now they're just an audience. We're entertaining them. Fine. But I want I want an answer to that to that question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like also when you think about like success, right, I think part of figuring out what that means for you as an artist is about defining what that what and who that audience is and for some people maybe it is the widest you know biggest audience ever i want to reach everybody i want to be or maybe i want to reach rich people and i want to be super successful and be on broadway maybe you know that's legit that's whatever but i feel like the artists that i know who really feel like they are whatever the word success means for you right is they know who and where their audience is whether it's mm. something as simple as like, these are the people who really dig the kind of form I have. These are the people who really dig my sense of humor or I'm making work for my community. I'm making work for Frogtown specifically and I'm telling stories about this place or I'm making, you know, work for my church community and what, you know, they like to talk about or I'm making work for this particular age group. I'm making work for seniors. I'm making work for kindergartners, you know, and, and that can change obviously from piece to piece, but I feel like drilling down into what that is for you and why that is for you helps it from being, it helps you from feeling like any piece is small, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're writing a piece to help like a five-year-old put together the idea of cause and effect, right? Like how does things work in the world and how do things cause other things to happen? And how can we understand the trajectory of events that occur that like you haven't experienced many of those because you're five and there's six five-year-olds who now have a new understanding of like how how events occur in the world and how to have feelings about them. That's a massive thing. You're not mm. getting a lot of money for it, probably, and it's not being broadcast globally, but you had an effect on the specific audience you're creating for. And I think when I see pieces, even when I see pieces that are kind of more mainstream, that I feel like, oh, as a queer person, I see what you did there. Like you said, you said something to me specifically, and I feel like your audience in that moment, or I got that Minnesotan joke, like, <laughs> but that was an inside joke. That wasn't an outside joke. That was like, okay, that reference was real. Like from one line to a whole piece that's really targeted to a specific audience. I feel like that's when I've had the most like memorable artistic experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amanda. Uh, I, well, I was just going to say uh, as a co-writer of a children's play, 
uh, for theater for the very young. So babies, uh, zero to about seven years old. Uh, my writing partner and I, Natalie Kutcher, wonderful artist, uh, you know, this play is without words and mm-hmm. it's accompanied by live music, sort of like a live Tom and Jerry, you know, two actors. And then you have the one accompanist and, uh, yeah, watching, you know, who, and our, the theater company that produced it was called arts on the horizon out of, um, Virginia, uh, right, right outside of Washington, DC. And they're absolutely wonderful. And, you know, I think they're one of the very few theaters that focus on theater for the very young, um, mm-hmm. instead of just, um, you know, that you have, um, Minneapolis children's theater and Seattle children's theater. Uh, but this specific company focuses on work for, you know, babies to about seven years old. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, writing, writing that show was just a joy because we, we already knew our audience. We, we had performed shows there before as actors and it just was so easy to develop and so easy to come up with because we knew our audience so well already and what, what we wanted to say to them and what, what we wanted to share with them. Well, it's it's really uh, quite funny because the the play that Julia was describing, where you learn about events and consequences, mm-hmm. that I know a lot of adults who could benefit from <laughs> drama of that yes. nature, right? Like, yep. hmm, if this happens, then that happens. Uh, yes. But every every play educates. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think that's that's certainly not the primary uh, impulse of drama, but. Uh, but yes, every every play will serve as a kind of education. You're going to walk away uh, knowing something that you didn't know before, Amanda. Yeah, no, I was just going to follow up with, I didn't realize, you know, when you were saying, Julia, if you know know your audience and, and know your community, it, it was surprising how easy it came. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not to say that playwriting is easy because it's, you know, I've never written anything beyond a children's play. So I'll leave that to Kevin and you, Julia. But but I was, uh, yeah, I was just very surprised at how, uh, how, how easy it came when you do know those things, when you do know those answers and starting from there, I think mm-hmm. is, is great. And I think that's part of the development process too, because if you don't know that that's part of what you want to find out. And a lot of what we do at Playwright Center and a lot of the workshops that I've been able to be a part of or, or see a part of, it's kind of like, who is responding to this? And what collaborators, you know, because at the first stage, before you bring an audience, right, you bring in your collaborators. And, you know, I number, I know a number of writers who each play goes through a, a different iterations of, of workshop or things like that with different groups of collaborators. And to see how does it strike a director? How does it strike this group of actors? If our cast skews older, skews younger, skews into different, you know, what is the cultural makeup of the room and things like that, that can really um, help kind of drill down to what the piece is, or is it a piece that can be open? Like you mentioned with white rabbit, red rabbit or things like that, that are, that's open to it'll play totally different in a different room. You know, the play that you see in Chicago is going to be a completely different experience to the play that you see in Milwaukee and, you know, for all these different variables, um, and it's all to down to how you build it, right? Like playwriting is a craft, right? So it's your, 
you're building, you're putting these pieces together and, you know, seeing what shape does what you mm. want it to do. Yeah. And, and Julia, I think now would be a great time. Do you want to kind of walk us through everything else that's coming up at the Playwright sure. Center? Yeah. That first piece sounded very exciting. VR headsets, kind of a reading, maybe not. Yes. Kind of, it's all yeah. mixed up. Yeah. I like we'll it. Yeah. See what happens. Yeah. So that's mm -hmm. Drew Pariser's piece, The Uses. Um, and that's this coming Friday, the 24th at seven. Um, and then the following week on Thursday, March 30th, we're having a conversation with Idris Goodwin, who is a fantastic playwright, also artistic director of Seattle Children's Theater, um, an affiliated writer with Playwright Center. Um, he's been on a, a number of different fellowships with us over the years, and he is talking with our director of fellowship programs, Lindy Rosario, and they're talking about what they love. They're focusing this conversation on kind of like their top five things they love about theater, about plays, about making theater um, and sort of turning the focus to joy and and sharing the love of the art form, which is something that doesn't always happen. Um, you know, I feel like there's so much that everyone very rightfully so you know, as focused on things we want changed or things that aren't working. And there's some big things. We talked about pay at the beginning of this conversation, you know, anything we we're trying to make art under a capitalist structure, right? It's there's issues with a lot of it, but also it's good to take time and say, why do we do it in the first place? Why do we keep coming back to it? What is it that we love? Um, and that conversation is going to happen on Zoom. So uh, you can sign up online. It's uh, going to be totally open, but you'll sign up and then we'll send you the link. Um, so that I'm excited about. And then April is our Play Labs Festival, which is our kind of biggest event of the year. Um, used to be, well, a long time ago, it was in the summer. Then it was in October. Now it's in April. We're just moving it around. Um, but it will be... From April 24th through the 30th are when the public readings will be. And we're featuring three full-length plays, um, a play called That Must Be the Entrance to Heaven by Frankie Gonzalez, which is about boxing. It's like a beautiful, mind-blowing tragedy about um, these four boxers and kind of their hopes and dreams. Um, we Another play is Andrew Rosendorf's play Stockade. Uh, which is about the experience of um, uh, some queer people around the Second World War and after and kind of their experiences uh, on Fire Island. Um, and Andrew is a local playwright, lives in Robbinsdale, a hometown hero. Um, and then Eridine Knox's play, A Wallace Church, A Black Woman's Guide to Creating God, which is going to be pretty amazing and features three killer actors who I don't think were cast yet, but I'm really excited about them. Um, and then we're also going to be featuring a showcase of scenes by all of this year's playwriting fellows. So you'll get a chance to see 12 different um, selections and kind of get to know a taste of their work uh, and then get, hopefully get really excited about their work and then hopefully be able to see it produced locally, which is always the dream for me. I love it when people get plays produced in Australia and in Georgia, but I also love it when it's here because then I can see it. Um, but we'll also be having a big party. Play Labs is kind of our big blowout event of the year. And so I uh, hope you can come. It's all free um, and we'd love to see you. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing. 
And speaking of moving around a lot, you're moving to Frogtown or St. Paul. St. Paul, yeah. So we just uh, recently like publicly announced our, we're calling it the Campaign for All Narratives, which is our campaign to help us uh, create our new building and move to our new building. And basically our current building, which we've been in since I want to say 1979, the center itself began in 71, but we were kind of itinerant for a few years before we moved to our current space, which is an old church and it's beautiful and we love it. And it is an old church and there are bats and there is no soundproofing. <laughs> and oh. we're just, we've <laughs> grown. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. There, uh, Riti Sachdeva, who's a brilliant writer, is working on this flamenco play that is so cool. But when you're working downstairs from the flamenco rehearsal, it's, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> it makes me want to just let me just be in rehearsal. I can't I can't type. Um, but also we're just growing as an organization. Um, there are not a ton of other new play development centers in the country or in the world. Um, RIP, the Lark Play Development Center in New York uh, and the Sundance Theater Lab. Also, we've kind of we're kind of, um, <laughs> of the of the new play world. Um, and so we're growing, you know, our programming is growing. We're trying to support more writers in more different and creative ways as they do play with form. And so we need a new space to do that. And we have a building um, that is just over the river in St. Paul. Um, it is in St. Paul, but it's only like a 10 minute drive from the current location. Uh, huh. And it is off of uh, Raymond and University. So if you know where dual citizen brewing or the naughty Greek are mm -hmm. in kind of that area, mm -hmm. we're about a block away from that, which also okay. means right off the green line, which is super convenient. Um, and it's a, a building that previously was a distributor for safety equipment. So hard hats and high-vis vests and things like that. But it's a great space. Um, it's much larger than our current space. And we're hoping to begin construction really soon um, so that we can be moving in in about a year. Um, but we're also, uh, you know, looking for support to help with that. Uh, we've gotten some great support uh, federally and from the state. Um, but we're just really excited to... We're excited to move into St. Paul. We're excited to be in that neighborhood that's growing a lot um, with a lot of different arts and other nonprofits around that hopefully we can share space and resource and wisdom with um, and to have more space to do crazier stuff. Yes, more and more crazy stuff. And you're coming over to St. Paul, which is great. It's all one city. We're the twin cities. Yeah, we're all yeah. we're all friends. We can play nice together. Uh, <laughs> Julia, let's let's use a few minutes, uh, uh, I guess, to get to know you a little bit. How long have you been at the Playwright Center and how did you arrive there? Yeah, I have been at the Center for almost 11 years. It'll be 11 oh. years in May, which is a lot. Um, it's a good chunk of my life. It's a, a third of my life. <laughs> um, and I began as an intern, actually, uh, in the summer of 2012. And uh, I had done um, administrative arts and ad admin kind of work throughout college, which really kind of set me in this direction. Uh, and then 
honestly, people kept getting pregnant at times that were really convenient for my career. So they brought me back to cover a number of maternity leaves and things like that. And then uh, I was the office manager for a few years and then moved into my current position, um, really focusing on the artistic programs and the, the fellowships. So Part of what I do is help produce the workshops, um, which, like I said, we've got about 70 a year. So there's a lot of of managing of that. And then I also run the application and selection processes for all of our fellowship programs. Um, And so I get to I get to know a lot of writers. Uh, Every writer who applies, whether they're selected or not, is kind of a connection that I make. Um, And so I get really excited uh, staff at Playwright Center don't make the decisions of who becomes a fellow. We actually have uh, panels and other evaluators who are um, other professionals in the field who we trust. But it's great for us because it means I don't have to choose. I just get to get excited about everybody and they tell me who we're going to work with. And then that's who I invest in. So that's, um, yeah, that's kind of what I do and and where I came from. You're the hype person. Yeah. The hype person. I yeah. think that's the title of this episode. Kevin. Right. Yeah. Julia yeah. Brown hype person. <laughs> I love Julia it. Brown hype. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hype yes. is, okay. Cool. I dig it. Yeah. What a what an exciting role to play. And I also wouldn't want to see your inbox. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! I even just my tabs. It's pathological the number of tabs I have open at any given moment. It's real. Every time I share my screen in Zoom, I get. Sh- screams of horror from everybody (laughs) (laughs) i'm like that with my uh my screenwriting partner uh written some screenplays and she's a director over in london and obviously that involves some screen sharing we met in the theater Uh uh and uh my desktop will just be littered just with files (laughs) and she just she's an editor too so she's very Oh punct- yeah. Punctualicit. Uh, I don't even know what the right word is. Particular. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know how you do this with your desktop. <laughs> it's muscle memory. It's muscle memory. You just kind of yeah. know where stuff is. The, yeah. the fact is, is I very rarely uh, have enough windows closed to ever see my desktop. It's right. I don't even I... know what my background is. I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So tell us a little bit about, are you from Minnesota? How did you get into the theater uh, to begin? Yeah, I'm from uh, Wisconsin originally, from Eau Claire, Um, and I grew up very into storytelling. My dad was a newspaper reporter, and uh, my mom did a number of things, but was also a puppeteer. And, you know, when we were talking earlier about making work for for young people, uh, when I was in preschool, she basically saw, you know, uh, chaperone some entertainment trips or something for preschool, and she thought it was terrible, so... Of course, the natural thing to do is start your own puppet company and write 10 original plays and build a bunch of puppets and tour around schools and libraries doing puppet shows. So I started as a roadie. I started as like a five-year-old roadie, <laughs> honestly. Um, and that was my introduction. And then, you know, started doing musicals and community theater as a kid. Um, I studied acting in college and then tried to do that for a couple of years and realized I hate monologues and that's not great. If you're going to be an actor, (laughs) I like, I feel it's just not for me. Um, And I realized, you know, what did I, what did I miss really about acting? And it was dramaturgical conversation about plays. It was reading new plays 
And it was working with an ensemble and performing. And so I joined the Playwright Center and started a band, um, which I've been in bands since I was a teenager. But my primary artistic practice is as a musician. So I have a band here in town um, called Barrel Flash. And we just released our first album last fall, actually. And we play around town. We're actually playing next Thursday at the Driftwood Char Bar. Um, And I sing in some choirs and things around town. So... um, yeah, playwright. I've I've written some plays, um, but I'm mostly on the sort of administration excitement, the hype side of, yeah. of theater in those ways. I like Julia Brown, the hype side. Uh, yes. And what is your what's what's your instrument? And tell us about uh, Barrel Flash. What what yeah. kind of music is it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm primarily a singer. Um, okay. I play some piano, um, but we're. You know, I like to say we're kind of a, a folky bar band, um, a, a lot of sort of folky sort of alternative stuff. Our album is a little on the countryside, um, but we cover everything from, you know, old traditional Irish songs to the Grateful Dead to we do some Lord. We do some, you know, XTC. We kind of run the gamut and we're a pretty intergenerational band. My bandmates are in their sixties. Um, so we all bring very different influences to the group and kind of find, find a vibe that works for everybody. (laughs) That is so awesome. Where can people find the, find the music? Do you have a website or where can people go buy it? Uh, barrelflashband.com. And we're on, uh, pretty much every streaming platform. Our first album was called a guide to dancing alone. Uh, and it's a 13 tracks of kind of countryfied, a couple waltzes, um, some jazzy stuff. I've got a, a a tragic ballad about Star Wars. You know, we kind of <laughs> kind of went all over the place with I'm it. digging Very this. Cool. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, that's a cool band name too. I'm always looking out for for cool band names. Right. And, and uh, working with with older folks, not that 60s that old, but uh, working with older folks must be uh, interesting. I really always appreciate um, that intergenerational dynamic. I I made a tweet today that you know saying people give boomers a hard time, but they're the only uh, uh, people in the group chat who will say things like. You were talking about Charlie Manson last night. A buddy of mine lived three doors down from that house. <laughs> you go, oh, oh okay. Uh, respect your elders. I'm listening. <laughs> there you go. You know, one of Charlie Manson's kids grew up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, my hometown. Is that right? The things you know when your dad's a newspaper reporter. <laughs> okay. Very Ooh, interesting. Or care yeah. not to know. <laughs> right. Know, yeah. However you want to look at it. Ooh. Right. Well, as we're sort of winding down into the last five, 10 minutes here, uh, Julia, for, for, okay, so I want to say something and then I'll lead into a question for you. So mm-hmm. I'll say as a playwright, uh, you know, for anybody who's listening, who's thinking about uh, writing a play or even, God forbid, having a career uh, as an American playwright, I will say, write the play, write a 10 minute play first, make sure it has a beginning, middle and an end, then sign up to become a member at the Playwright Center at pwcenter.org. I mean, over the course of my life, uh, you know, as a playwright, I, I have a, a small amount of standing. So periodically, people will ask me about this stuff. And I always tell them, get on wherever they are. Get on the Playwright Center's uh, membership platform. It's worth whatever it costs. It's a nominal amount of money. Uh, what 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 is the membership now, Julia? Yeah, it's 75 bucks for a year or eight bucks a month. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's not any more than a Netflix subscription. And the value you get out of it as a playwright, if nothing else, and there's a lot more value, but is the the opportunities board. I mean, that's where it all lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that's a huge resource. And it's something that our team of apprentices do an amazing job of keeping it updated on a weekly basis. And basically, it's a listing of everywhere that we've found that you can submit work or apply in different ways. And it's sortable, it's searchable, you can save things, you can we have a, a sort of widget that will put deadlines on your calendar for you, things like that to really and track where you've sent your work. Um, and it's really, you know, it's something you you can do on your own. You can spend hours searching the web, the, the Internet for places to send your work or you can have us do it for you and save you a little bit of time, which um, is so exciting to hear from members when something comes through for them I, that they found that way. I, I took this for granted when I was a younger playwright. Uh, you know, there was I was in grad school. There was a listing on the opportunities board. It was a little theater called Monday's Dark. I don't think they're doing anything now. I sent them my play. Uh, the next morning, they wrote back. And don't think that this ever happens, by the way. <laughs> I, did, I got extreme. The next morning, they wrote back and said, Kevin, we love your play. We want to produce it in New York. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was like, what? And I, of course, and I was young and stupid, uh, stupider than I, than I am now. And uh, and I just thought, oh, it's going to be like this forever. <laughs> right? Oh, God. And th- that play is called If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn. And it, it's an internet sex comedy for the recession generation. And uh, that is published um, uh, by Broadway Play Publishing, oh, if nice. you're interested in it. Yeah. But that, I mean, but that is a direct con- consequence of that board, uh, which if you get nothing else out of the Playwright Center, and you will if you become a member, one, you support the center. The membership fees are not going into, they're going to support other playwrights. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's not nothing. And then that board board is just one of the best resources available to playwrights. Yeah, yeah, it's super, it's super great. And we actually just launched this past year um, a thing called Script Club, which is a chance for members to share work with each other and get feedback. And it's something that, um, and we also sometimes do, we call them member open play sessions where we get on Zoom and read a play together and talk about it. And one of the things that's so great, obviously, if you've never written a play and gotten feedback on it, it's a way to do that in a structured way. So you're not just getting kind of every single, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. It's got a, a structure to it, but it also helps you learn to think dramaturgically about other people's work. And mm-hmm. I hear so much from members that like, actually, I learned more from giving feedback on somebody else's work than I even got from the feedback on my own work because I learned how to see how plays work. What Mm. is the structure? What is the thing that makes it tick? It's not like a mystical, magical stew. There are real techniques, you know, Mm -hmm. that go to crafting story and, you know, ways you can see that in each other's work. What's working? What doesn't work? What's missing here? Um, And so that's an opportunity also for members. And then, of course, classes, we have some of the greatest teachers who are all working playwrights. We've got um, classes coming up about satire, classes about how to play with form. Um, We've got a class going on. Stephen Dietz is teaching a class on revision. He he was my advisor at Texas. Yeah. Yeah. He's the best. Say say hello to Dietz for for me. Yes, we'll do. We'll do. Please do. Yeah. I hope he's doing well. We're we're winding down. This has been great. 
Julia Brown, the hype side here <laughs> on Mouthing Off from Bad Mouth Theater Company, badmouthtc.com. Go to pwcenter.org, whether you're an artist, a playwright, a theater maker, or audience. Uh, and if you if you have extremely deep pockets, help them make the move to St. Paul. Fair to say, uh, Julia? <laughs> Come join us. Yes, join we're excited. Us. We're excited. We've join been around for, for 52 years, and we are ready for 52 more. With that, you've been listening to Mouthing Off online and on Frogtown Radio, 94.1 FM. I've, I'm Kevin Couchman with Amanda Forstrom. And Julia, this is an open door. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Can't wait. It's been great talking to you all.